Uh, would you now just take a moment with me and let's bow for prayer one more time. Father, help us to joyfully receive the truth of your word as you have revealed to us your purpose, your design, your objectives in creating this new covenant people that we call the church. Help us to see the things that we read as being for our good and for our benefit, not a burden or a yoke that we have to pull and drag. Father, to the extent that our hearts do not resonate with the truth that we find here, we ask that in your faithfulness, because you are God, that you would alter and change hearts. To the extent that our hearts do respond to the truth that we find here, would you keep us humble and allow that to be another sign of your goodness to us, that you have given us hearts by which we can acknowledge and rejoice over your truth. And Father, we would also pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is not, by repentance and faith in the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, come to know you as Heavenly Father, come to know Jesus as Savior, and your Holy Spirit as their regenerating, indwelling power, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us as a church to be that pillar and that foundation of the truth that holds and maintains what you have already revealed to us. And we pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior. Amen. Earlier, earlier this year, the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we're a part, had an, an, its annual convention, and usually when the annual convention is had in various locations, they'll put out what's called uh, the Book of Reports, which is, uh, for most of us, probably as exciting as what it sounds. It's 200-something uh, pages of statistics and references and lists and numbers and so on and so forth, and some of it more pertinent or some of it more important or essential than the others. But uh, one of the things that uh, I did not find this myself, someone else had pointed it out, uh, in that report, there uh, is a page where some of the, the stats for the Southern Baptist denomination are listed or provided. And so, you know, certain types of people, God makes us in all different kinds of shapes and ways and with interests. Some people like numbers and they like statistics. Some people do. And so they dig through those things. And someone pointed out that for the year 2020, the members, the, the number of members listed for the Southern Baptist Convention was, let me make sure I get this right, 14,089,947. So we'll say 14 million, just to round it off, okay? That's 2020, number of members in the Southern Baptist Convention, 14 million. Later on that page, there was a number that was given for what the weekly attendance is for Southern Baptist churches. 14 million members on any given week, only 4 million are in attendance. Fourteen million members, 
four, close to four and a half million are actually gathered together on a Sunday morning on a weekly basis. Just stop and let that sink in. Where are the other 10 million? Now, in fairness, you say, well, Merritt, that's, that's 2020. That was, you know, the year of COVID. That was, you know, shutdowns. That was live stream services. No one was gathering in person. And I actually thought that myself. I thought, you know, I know I'm given to pessimism, right? But even I have my limits. So there's got to be some ray of sunshine in here. So I did, uh, drawing on my extensive math background, I broke the numbers down, crunched them, as the kids say. Do the kids say that? They crunch numbers? I don't know. If there are 14 million members and if 4 million are in attendance regularly, give or take, the numbers, when you get down to the actual, actual numbers, it rounded out to somewhere around 32% of the members of Southern Baptists are in weekly attendance. 32%. That was the number. So, but again, that's a COVID year. So it can't possibly be that bad. So you get on you know, the, the Google machine and you look up the, the other years and say, well, what the, the previous report that we had goes back two years earlier, so 2020 was the latest year. You go back to, to the report that was given on 2018, which was the most current, and the 32% that attended weekly for 2020 bumps up to 35% in a pre-COVID year. So whether you're talking about COVID or not, whether you're talking about a pandemic or not, you're talking about people who who associate with our denomination, and we like to pride ourselves as being God's real people, right? We, we pride ourselves as being people of the Word, people of Scripture. Only a third of the people who claim to be part of the people of God actually gather together with the people of God on a Sunday morning. One-third. Why? Well, there could be a number of reasons. One, we could say that the reason that we only have a third of our members attending on a weekly basis is because our membership roles are grossly inflated. Evidence of that is the fact that people who say they're members, who are listed as members on paper, simply don't act like members. That could be one reason. I think that's probably true to a certain extent. I don't think that it explains everything, but it could be that some of the gap is because of inflated membership roles. If God can say even of Israel that not everyone who descends from Israel is actually Israel, he can certainly say that about Southern Baptists, right? Another reason that we may not have more than a third of our people gathered weekly is our tendency, and we talked about this from the beginning of our series, our tendency to make personal and private and individual things that pertain to our faith. So when we talk about salvation or when we witness to people, when we think about the faith, we think about the faith in a private, personal sort of way. It's, it's my faith. It's how the Lord is speaking with me. It's how the Lord is leading me. Nothing wrong with that to a certain extent. God does speak to us individually. He does lead us individually. He does save us as individuals. But again, 
He saves a person to make them part of His people. So we have lost the idea that the Christian faith is also communal and public. We said it already, to be united to Christ is to be united to His people. Probably there are a significant number of us who don't always make that strong connection. If I have been united to Christ, that means I have been united to everyone else who is united to Christ. And that, in the most clearly demonstrated way, happens in the union, the relationships that we build here in a local church. Related to that, though, a third reason could be that maybe we just have lost sight of the fact that the church, even down to its very nature and design, is itself a gathered people. So if you have your notes, you'll look for, if you'll notice, for example, the question that we're answering today about the church, what does the church do? We're actually going to give three answers, the first one today and then two more in the next two weeks. What does the church do? We gather. One of the reasons that we know that it's essential to gather as the church is because the very term for church in the New Testament means an assembly or a gathering. So, if you're an egghead or if you want to nerd out a little bit, you've got the term there at the top of your notes, the term ecclesia, which almost everywhere in our Bibles is rendered church in English. If you get out your handy-dandy Greek lexicon and you look it up, you'll find that the origins of that word actually had its roots in politics. Regularly assembled people assembling, gathering together to do the work of the town or the city or to make decisions or to gather together in celebration. And that language is used in the New Testament, which means that when we read about the church, one of the things that might be helpful for us is to think that the church is essentially an assembly. An assembly at heart, does one thing really well. It assembles. If an assembly is not assembling, it's not an assembly. If a congregation is not congregating, it's not a congregation. One of the things that we might ought to ask ourselves is, for good or for bad, for whatever, any number of reasons, is it possible that the reasons that only a third of us, and just talking about our denominational affiliation, is it possible that only a third of us gather together regularly, is, is that because we just don't know, we don't understand, or we've forgotten the fact that that's who we are at the core, we are a gathered assembly of God's people, which means if that's what we are, we have to begin to ask hard questions about what it may insinuate or imply if we are not gathering together. If the church is an assembly, 
and I'm not assembling, in what way, to what extent, can I claim or assure myself that I'm actually part of the assembly? Do you see? Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not trying to even imply or hint that the only way that you can know that you're a Christian is if you're if you have a perfect attendance record on Sunday morning. I'm not saying that the only way that you can know that you're a Christian is if you are a church member. I'm not saying that if you do not attend, you are not a Christian. What I would like to put in front of you today, though, and to encourage you to consider, and anyone who's in the, within the sound of my voice, is to consider that if the church at its core is an assembly, a gathered assembly of God's people, that not to gather, not to assemble, ought to raise red flags about where you stand in relation to God's people, and by extension, even to God's covenant of grace. You don't have these references in your notes, but let me just give to you just a couple of examples of, of why it is that we know that this is not just merit getting on a soapbox, right? What pastor is not going to come up and say, hey, we need more people in church? Well, of course, that's what preachers do. Acts 20, verse 7, you don't need to turn there, just, I mean, you can if you want, but Acts 20, verse 7 says, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. Already in Acts, the very first generation of Christians, we have evidence in the historical record that the church, in its founding, in its beginning, not only recognized Sunday as being special. Any takers on why Sunday would have been special? Resurrection. It's the day that the Lord rose from the dead and therefore the mark of a new beginning. We're identifying ourselves with a crucified, risen Savior. What better way to do that than to assemble ourselves on the day that He rose so that we can commemorate that together? In the first generation of Christians, they are already meeting on the first day of the week. They are gathered together self-consciously as God's covenant people. That's in Acts. Later, in Corinthians, Paul will make what seems like an offhanded comment when he is beginning to talk with the Corinthians about the way that they're abusing the Lord's Supper. And he'll say in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, in the first place, when you come together as a church, which suggests that Paul, as an apostle, considered a formal gathering of Christians to be different from any other sort of gathering that may happen any other time during the week. We can gather together as Falcons fans and all be Christians and not be gathered together as the church. Do you, you get that? Because we're gathered to watch a football game, and it's just an added benefit that we all happen to be Christians as well. Paul recognizes the fact that there is a unique way in which the church exists when it self-consciously assembles together as the church. That's when you have the church. 
And then other passages in the New Testament indicate the importance of regularly gathering, assembling in person together. The most famous is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. After saying we, need, we ought to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, it says, the, the author of Hebrews says in verse 25, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some. Don't ignore the regular gathering of the church. Don't break away from the regular assembly of God's people. And it gets even more significant and profound when you skip ahead to 1 John and you hear John use language like this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us because they were not really of us. If they were of us, they would have remained, but they have gone out to show that they were not really of us. Do you hear what John is saying there? John is saying to a church that has been rocked by a defection from the Christian church, John has said the fact that they are no longer meeting together with you, the fact that they no longer hold to the same doctrinal truths, the fact that they no longer share your lifestyle together under the Lordship of Christ, the fact that they are no longer with you is itself an indication that they never really were one of us. It is a dangerous thing for any Christian to break away from the gathered church and to not regularly meet with their brothers and sisters in Christ on a weekly basis. It is dangerous. Let me pause right here for a second. Let me, let me say a word to, to any young adults that we have in here. Whether you are college-bound or not, or you're out in the workplace, or you're getting your first taste of freedom out from under mom and dad's thumb, especially if you're getting a taste of that freedom when mom and dad used to drag you kicking and screaming to church. If you're here, I'm glad you're here. Let me tell you, though, that one of the best things Perhaps the best thing that you will do for your soul long-term is not to drop out of church. You need, week after week after week, as you're being bombarded with the philosophies of this age and the spirit of this age that we swim in every day, that we take for granted and don't even recognize the way that we're being trained and catechized, you desperately need to have a place where you can come and you can get your mind right and centered back on the Lordship of Jesus Christ to withstand all of the pressures and all the influences and all of the pokes and prods and nudges that the world is trying to give you as an offer to real happiness. One of the best things that you can do for your soul is not to give up on the church. Parents, grandparents, one of the best things that you can do for your kids or your grandkids, or if you are uh, a guardian, to do for those under your care is 
yes, yourself, to be part of a church, to regularly gather and assemble, it is also good for you and the people under your charge, under your authority, for you to know why it is that you gather. So that when little Johnny on Sunday morning doesn't want to get out of bed and ask that infamous question, why do I have to go to church? You don't mumble and fumble and just leave it at because I said so. I've done that. Sometimes that works. But that can't be the only answer, right? There's got to be something more than that. What I hope is that the time that we spend here talking about the importance of the church gathering is that we see that, the, that a group of Christians regularly gathering together on a week-by-week basis is a good, gracious thing that God has done for us. It is not a legalistic demand or requirement that He has done, but it is something that He has done for our spiritual good, for our preservation, so that we will remain in His covenant grace all the way until the end. He puts us together in a church, and He tells us to assemble regularly because He loves us. And if I think that I don't need what God has commanded, I may not say this verbatim, but I am propping myself up as being wiser than God. God has said that I need this. And if God has said that I need to gather with you on a regular basis, that's what I need because He knows that I need it. So, let me give you then, now this is in your notes, let me give you three reasons why we gather outside of the fact that we gather because, well, God commands us to, or because it's dangerous if we don't. Both of those things are true. Let's at least look at some reasons that we can celebrate over and say, oh yes, it is a good thing that we gather together. Number one, Matthew 18, 20. We gather together on a regular basis because Christ Himself has promised that His presence is with us in a unique way when we gather together as His people. Matthew 18, 20, most of you know this by heart, where two or three are gathered in my name, that is, as disciples of me, identifying themselves with me. When they gather for that purpose, there I am in their midst. It's not very complicated. On the authority of Christ Himself, I would say this to you. You lagging in in your faith, you feel spiritually dull, you don't know if you're going to persist or continue to go on, you want more from Jesus, you need more church. And yes, yes, we'll get to the fact, I'm not talking about church in just the, the bland institutional way. But if Jesus says that there is a unique way in which I make myself known to my people when they are gathered together, man, my heart should be hungry for that. 
Because if my heart has been changed by Christ, Christ is who I want. I want his rewards more than I want anything else on this earth. I may not always remember that. I may not always act like it. But that's why I need to come here because I need people like you to remind me of that. We gather because in our gathering as a church, as an assembly, Christ has made himself uniquely known by his spirit that we share together. Number two, a second reason that we gather together. We gather together as a reminder that we are not alone. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at the introduction that Paul gives in this letter. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. Paul says that he's writing to the church of God, to the assembly of God, which is at Corinth. So this particular assembly is the Corinthian assembly, just like there's a Columbus assembly, just like there's a, an Edgewood assembly. To the church, to the assembly of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You hear what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that church, assembly, when you gather together, you may seem small and insignificant. And that's what the world wants you to think. That you are this pitiful little minority that's just getting walked all over. And Paul would say, when you gather together as the people of God, don't you forget that God has his people all over the globe gathering together with you. God has his people, God has his work going on in every city, in every state, in every country, on every continent. And it is good for us to think that what we do here binds us together with others who confess Christ as, our, as Lord and Savior in the Middle East. In fact, it's a good reminder for me to tell myself that I have, because of Christ, I actually have more in common with a Middle Eastern Christian than what, than what I do with a pure, red-blooded American neighbor. I'm reminded of that when I gather together with my brothers and sisters because I'm reminded that other Christians are gathering together on a regular basis. And not just in this current present time. If you have your notes, flip over on the back. You've got this little quote here from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived sometime between 100 and 165 in this work called, a, called his first apology that he wrote to a Roman ruler. He was trying to explain something about the Christian faith and their practice. Listen to what Justin Martyr says. This was sometime in the second century. He says this about Christians. And on the day called Sunday... All who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, 
the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent, saying, Amen. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. Do you realize that what we do on Sunday morning when we gather here, we are continuing a long, rich tradition that has lasted for thousands of years of God's people gathering together on a weekly basis to hear His Word, to pray His Word, to sing, encourage one another. And that has sustained, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that has sustained God's covenant people for more than 2,000 years. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. How are you going to improve on that? So we gather not just because there is a special way in which we come to know the presence of Christ in our midst when we gather together as a people. We also come to remember, or we ought to be reminded, that when we gather together, we are doing so in similar fashion to all of our other brothers and sisters around the globe and through the history of the church, it connects me spiritually with my spiritual forefathers and foremothers. And third, we gather as an act of faith and hope. Hebrews 12, you want to turn there. Hebrews 12, 22. We read this earlier in one of our sermons, I can't remember which one it was. But Hebrews 12, 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of all the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Simply put, we gather here because our brothers and sisters who are with the Lord are gathered there. When we gather together as God's people, one of the things that we're saying is, is that we are claiming as an act of faith by our presence together that we believe that God is calling all of His people to Himself and that what is happening on in heaven is being given a glimpse here on earth. That's what we're doing. That's one of the ways that we bear witness to the truth of God's Word in the Christian faith. That all that we say and do, even when it comes to meeting together on a Sunday morning, in some way points back to unseen spiritual realities. We gather here on earth because they are gathered together in heaven. That's an act of faith. The church is an act of faith. 
Assembling is an act of faith. Because if you, at any given moment, turn to your right or left and look at your neighbor or who's in front of you or behind you or something like that, and you think, this is an example of what's happening in the heavenly places right now, you're out. There's no one that you're going to sit next to that's going to convince you of heavenly realities unless God has made that real and true in your heart. And you come as an act of faith to a group of mixed-up, broken, weak people and say, when we gather together, we are saying something about the fact that God in His wisdom, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, has been calling His people to gather together from the dawn of the resurrection day. And it's not only an act of faith, that there are heaven realities that are going on that we're trying to give expression to, that we're trying to imitate. It's also an expression of hope because our ultimate hope is that once we're done here in this gathering, in this world, in this life, our hope and expectation is that we are going to join that heavenly assembly and actually see with our own eyes the reality of God's presence and being and existence and glory. And I'm going to do that not by myself, not in private reflection. I'm going to do it with other brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the King that God has graciously brought safely home. That's my hope. And because that's what I'm hoping for, because that's what my life is moving towards, I'm trying to practice that as best I can with God's help right now. Where am I going to get a feel for what I have in store for me in the future? God says, I will give you the ability to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll give you the body of my son, the church. And when you gather together with them, you will get a glimpse, just a glimpse, tantalizing, at times taunting, at times frustrating, but a glimpse, a taste of what is in store for you in the future. If those three things can't motivate us to gather together on a regular basis, I don't know that we, can, we have anything else to offer. If you're here and if you hear things like the promise that Christ makes about making himself known in a gathered assembly, hearing that when we gather, we are doing so in solidarity with our brothers and sisters across the globe and with our brothers and sisters throughout church history, that we are gathering together as an act of faith, that we believe in unseen realities, and we are giving expression to our future hope that we will one day be gathered together in the very presence of God. If those things don't move your heart, you need to call out to the Lord and ask Him to give you a love for the gathered assembly. Or, some of you may be here, and your heart is dead and numb to those things. It, th these, these promises, these truths don't resonate with you at all. I would encourage you, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If there's no heartbeat there, call out to the Lord who raises the dead call out to the Lord who will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh to love not only him, but to love his people as well. 
So assuming that we see that it's a good thing for us to gather together on a regular basis, that the church at its core is an assembly of God's people gathered together physically in proximity to one another, then the question comes up, well, what do we do when we gather together? This is not an exhaustive list. We're going to touch on more things next week when we talk about the church grows together. But in terms of our, of our gathering, especially what we're doing on a Sunday morning here, just for the ease of remembering, I would say you can sum it up in three ways. All of it goes back to the Word. We saw last week that what marks out God's church is that it is God's Word that calls us to Himself as we hear Christ's voice, the voice of the Good Shepherd calling us together. That draws us into one another. That His Word is what His church is built on. It's the foundation that we continue to grow on top of and expand. And that His Word is ultimately the church is the pillar and support of the truth. We're making it known that there is a God who has revealed Himself. So it shouldn't be any surprise then that what we do when we gather together ought to tie back into, in significant ways, the Word that has given us birth and that defines us as a people. So when we gather together... We want to speak the Word, we want to sing the Word, and we want to see the Word. Speak, sing, and see. Speaking the Word. We can do this in fairly short order. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Remember last week when we saw that the church is called the pillar and support of the truth? That was in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and in that statement, Paul says that he's writing to Timothy, hoping to be with him soon, but in case he's delayed, I'm writing so that you would know how one ought to conduct himself in the house of God. So all of 1 Timothy is written in, in a broad stroke sort of way, to say, Timothy, here is what the church ought to do. Here's how she functions. Here's what she's like. Here's what God's people do. And listen to the instructions that he gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching." Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Notice verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The reason that we want to speak the Word, the reason that we give time to preach and to teach the Scriptures is because God has said that in the exercise of His will, He brought us into being by His Word. 
He tells us in Peter that we are to long for the pure milk of the Word like newborn babies that are just sucking down the nourishment that they get from God's Word. And here, Paul is writing to a younger man that he's discipling, that's partnering with him in ministry, and saying, Timothy, when the church gathers together, you need to make it a priority that God's Word is heard over and over and over again. Why? They're already saved. Because, Timothy, when you give regular attention to the Word, when the church gathers together and demands to hear the voice of God through the Scriptures, you are guaranteeing, ensuring salvation for yourself as the preacher and also for them. We, as a church, need to be speaking God's Word back and forth to each other because the Word of God is what's going to keep us in the faith. You begin to drift from the church, where are you going to hear God's Word on a regular basis? Who is going to come to you and tell you, either by way of encouragement or way of warning or way of correction, who's going to give you the Word of God? Who's going to motivate you and press you to keep on the faith? You're going to get that kind of word from CNN? You're going to get that kind of word from Fox News? Don't kid yourself. The church gathers together and it prioritizes and values the Word of God because it's the Word that has given us life, it's the Word that sustains our life, and it's the Word that is going to enable us to make it to the end by clinging to the promises of God that He has given us in His Word. Number two, the second thing that we ought to do when we gather together is not only do we want to speak God's Word, we also want to sing God's Word. Turn to Colossians 3.16. By the way, I probably should throw it in there. I had it in my notes, and I just completely overlooked it. I won't go back, though. Speaking the Word, not just what happens in the sermon, but when we pray together as well, right? Jesus actually gave His disciples instructions and a model on how to pray. There are prayers that are recorded in the Scripture so that we know the things that we ought to pray for, the things that we ought to ask for. When we pray together, there ought to be the Word of God coming out in our prayers. That's another way that we speak God's Word as we gather together. But we're on singing God's Word. So Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the Word of Christ, Paul says, richly dwell within you. And as that, the Word is richly dwelling within you, one of the byproducts of that is that you're going to be giving the Word in fellowship 
in sharing with one another. And Paul actually says one of the best ways that you do that is when you sing together. Stop for a minute. With the best of intentions, we have heard people probably for most of our lives, if you grew up in the church, say things like, we're singing to an audience of one. True, as far as that goes, right? The only one worthy of praise is God, is the Son, is the Holy Spirit. But if Colossians 3.16 is to be taken seriously... When we sing together as a church, we're not just singing to God, we're singing to one another. Not singing praises to one another, we're singing to one another so that as we hear each other singing, it's like the entire congregation saying to me, now Merritt, don't forget this. You had a miserable week. But Merritt, listen to the melody of God's truth ringing in your ears. Listen to how God's truth takes up a song-like quality and causes your heart to sing. This means that when the church sings together, listen, it's not that everything that we sing, by by singing the word to each other, doesn't mean that we have to quote verbatim, although that wouldn't be a bad thing, right? What it does mean, though, is that in the variety of our singing, what we should always want to be able to ask and answer is, in what way does this song say something true about God or about His covenant with us? And then the other side to that is, I also want to consider that not everything that I sing, not every time that the church sings, may I necessarily be, first and foremost, the intended target for that song. What do miserable people sing when they come to church? By miserable, I mean sad. What does... A miserable person sing as they're grieving the loss of a family member. What do they sing in the loss of a job? What do they sing when physical health fails, when they're having family difficulties? There needs to be a recognition that the church at her best sings a full range of the truths of God's Word that come to bear on the human experience. So there are times when we probably ought to sing songs that to the average person might sound really depressing. Abide with me. Fast flows the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers and comfort cease, Lord abide with me. That doesn't jazz people up. 
it may be that you're not the one who needs to hear that. It may be that one of the reasons that God has brought you on a Sunday morning to gather together with his people is so that you can sing a song like that for the benefit of someone other than yourself. So at the end of the day, whether in an up-tempo song or a slow song, a mournful song, a song of rejoicing and gladness, the question needs to be something more than, does this really excite me? Is this what I want to hear? What I want to hear, what God's people want to hear, we, f- we forget this, but what we really want to hear, we want to hear God's Word. And there are few things better in this life in causing the Word of God to stick than to hear it sung. We remind ourselves that all of this world, all of the things that are offered to here are pale in comparison to the riches that we have in Christ. We remind ourselves of our future hope. We remind ourselves of what God has done in his work of redemption. We sing those truths. I I would love it as this church continues to grow and mature if we would be able to say our singing is so rich that it could suffice in place of a sermon. Now, I'm still going to preach. All right? But that kind of richness, I I would love it as we continue to grow and mature for us to be able to say, pick out any song that we sing on a given Sunday and to be able to say, now where is this in Scripture? It's right here. Right? may not be verbatim, but I can go to a chapter and verse and say, here's this thought, here's this idea, so that we're not only speaking God's Word to each other, but we're singing it together. Last thing I'll say about this, all right? Because this starts to verge over into soapbox stuff. That's the danger of topical sermons. All right? Personally, this is one of the reasons why every now and then when the, when the instruments drop out and you hear just the voices, one of the reasons that ought to be so rich is because that's Colossians 3.16. Because what I'm hearing is my brother and sister. I'm hearing my covenant community singing to me and me to them the truths of God's Word, and we're singing it and sharing it together. Last thing, we want to speak the Word in our preaching, in our teaching, in our studies, in our prayers. We want to sing the Word in the songs that we use. And lastly, and we'll have more to say on this in a sermon that's given over to the ordinances, we want to see the Word. There is a long tradition in the church of recognizing that one of the reasons that God has given us things like, the, like baptism and the Lord's Supper is because those things are visible signs of an invisible work. And those visible signs remind me of unseen truths and realities that it is easy for me to forget. So when I see someone who has just come to faith in Christ be baptized and I see them immersed in the water, I'm reminded of how God washes us and cleanses us from all sin. I see reenacted 
in the sign of baptism the spiritual invisible reality that when Christ died and was buried, I was dead and buried with him, my old life. And that when Christ came up out of the grave, he raised me up along with him. When we gather together around the table to practice the Lord's Supper together, I'm reminded that as real as what this bread and this drink is, that's as real as what my faith is. I can taste it. I can touch it. And one day I'm going to taste and touch a whole lot more than what I'm doing right now. In the same way that I'm feeding on this piece of bread and this drink, I am feeding on the nourishment that I get from Christ. We put that on display. We reenact the work that God has done in saving a people for himself, and we do it together as a way to celebrate and remind ourselves of who we are and who we belong to. So people, here's what I would encourage you to do as we, as we wrap up. One, I hope that as you've spent some time thinking through this and listening and perhaps going back and rehearsing or going back and reading a little bit more deeply some of these passages that we've read. One, I hope that first and foremost, it impresses upon you, either in a new way or in a renewed way, the importance of what we do when we gather together. That this is not just a tradition or a habit or some empty exercise. This is what God himself has created us to do for our good as we wait to be gathered together with Him. I hope that you will come to see more clearly the importance of what we do when we gather together on Sunday. And to the extent that you recognize how good it is that God would draw us together this way so that we can hear and sing and see His Word and encourage one another with it, I hope that the next thing that you'll do is you'll consider, well, if all of this goodness is given to us from God when we gather together, why isn't so-and-so here enjoying the riches of God's goodness with me? We probably all know people who, for whatever reason, are not seated with us, gathered with us this morning. I'm not talking about going and hunting them down like a bunch of sin sniffers. Big, thick King James Bible in hand so that you can club them over the head and drag them by the hair to church. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about God's people being convinced of the goodness of what He's designed and being so eager for their brother or sister to share in that with them that they appeal and plead with them, come and join us. You cannot duplicate this in a podcast. You cannot duplicate this mediated by a screen. You have to be here because this is where Christ is and this is where His blessings are experienced in a real significant way. Bow with me in prayer. Father, how patient you are with me and with us. When we are short-sighted, when we are self-centered, 
when we are lulled into thinking along with the patterns in the course of this age, that even our faith is primarily about me, us as individuals. How patient you are to continue to bring us back to your word and to show us how much more there is that you have in store for us as we respond in faith and obedience, as we gather together regularly to hear your word, to sing it, to see it as your covenant people. I pray that you would continue to work in the hearts and minds of the people here at Edgewood a greater hunger and desire to experience these truths in their fullness on a regular basis. Be kind and gracious to do that. And Father, if there are those here this morning who do not know what it means to be part of the people of God, to have that bond by your Spirit, in the fellowship of Christ, would you give them a hunger that they can't ignore? Cause them to be restless until they find their rest in you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Before we close out, let me say two things. One, in our evening service at 6 o'clock, we actually set aside time for you to ask any questions that may pertain to the, to the message that we're given. If you want more clarification or if something seems a little bit off, you actually get to ask questions and it's a, a very relaxed, low-key question and answer time where we have an opportunity to dig in a little bit more deeply. So I would encourage you to come back at 6 o'clock. Second, to those people who may be here who do not know the realities of what it means to be part of God's covenant people, I really do pray. I pray before I come into the to Sunday morning. I pray after the fact, after we have all gone our separate places, that God would take his word and would uniquely bring it to bear on your heart and mind that you can't shake it. And if that's you, either with questions about what it means to really be tied to God's people as a Christian or to be tied to God's people as a person who needs to become a Christian, I would love to be able to talk to you. There are any number of people in this room who would love to have the opportunity to talk to you. I'll be at the door, but I'll stay here after everyone is cleared out, and I'll talk one-on-one -on -one with you for as long as what you'd like. Church, let's stand up and sing. I do encourage you, as, uh, as we close out, don't just let this be a song that you sing uh, trying to get ready to go to lunch. Reflect on these words and, and the truth of these words. As Jonathan said, they are scripture and uh, encouragement to us. Go through the clap. Let's make some noise for the Lord Jesus Christ today.
dismissed. God bless.